0: Live from Derbyshire, this is The Sunday Lunch Show with Brent Poland, and you are listening live.
1: So, welcome to this edition of Teachers Talk Radio with me, Brent Poland. Today I'm going to be discussing the global pandemic, COVID and school safety, with none other than Karen Bales, who was and is a misinformation expert, freelance journalist, all-around good egg and former executive of the NEU. So let's tune in and talk it out.
0: This is Teachers Talk Radio and you are listening live. Tune in live at TTRadio.org or join in the conversation by downloading the Podbean app and following Teachers Talk Radio. Hashtag TTRadio.
1: So today we're going to be talking to my good friend and collaborator, Adam Spence, you will be joining me in and out today uh, to discuss some of what happened last week, which was excellent. We had, a, we had a fantastic interview with Kevin Courtney and the Joint General Secretary of the NEU. And from that, obviously, we can see that this week within education, everybody's getting ballots or text messages. Have you voted yet? And that's an ongoing situation we'll keep an eye on. And as Kevin said, he might want to return to this in a couple of weeks. And, and I certainly would like Kevin to get back because it was a really good interview it was only meant to have him for about 30 minutes but once the two of us got got talking uh, there was plenty of issues that we explored and you can download that if you if you missed that as well on teachers talk radio on podbeam or on twitter spaces or wherever you get your podcast from and we have plenty of places to get teachers talk really on If you're also interested in joining us on Teacher Talk Radio as a presenter and doing what I'm doing, we are looking for presenters. We're looking for a broad base of people who work in education and we're broad church in that way. So you look at all our presenters and what we offer and we were all very different and we've got all very different ways of doing things and different topics that we can talk about. So tune in and talk it out. So I'm going to go to Adam in a second just to get his sort of take on what we felt was last week, which was uh, Kevin Courtney, before I have a little bit of a, a chat with you about what this week will be. And that will be at 1.30. We will be talking to Karen Bales, and uh, hopefully we will be because he's um due well his wife is due to um deliver a child in the next couple of days so i just better make sure that Minnie Bales has not arrived yet so I, oh own big time um and if we get a phone call halfway through that he can't make it that's why he can't make it because he's got a phone call saying he's rushing to hospital so i I do think it's fantastic that he's going to give up his time um to be able to do that for me today but he's a very interesting individual and i've come across him a couple of times we shared some platforms especially during the height of the covid crisis when schools were in a real pickle so Um, This is a bit of a debrief on last week then, Adam. What did you think then to the interview with Kevin? What were your big takes that you got from it?
2: Yeah, well, hi. Good afternoon, Brent. um, And thank you, everyone, for listening again. I mean, what a first show. I mean, it was incredible, wasn't it, to uh, get the head of the NEU, um, Kevin, on to discuss the issues that get really impacting on schools teachers and pupils and, and the wider community as well, let's not forget that uh, schools don't exist in isolation. Uh, the real takeaway for me as as I kind of drove home thinking about the show was that all these issues are interlinked. Um, they're not just kind of isolated issues. I know we discussed pay, uh, but today we'll be discussing uh, the COVID issues you know, there's resource issues in schools. There's lots of issues that are kind of going on. And Kevin, I think, articulately brought all of those uh, things together. And it's amazing kind of thinking, um, you know, I think it was two years ago, wasn't it, uh, that we kind of got together, Brent, uh, to start thinking about putting together a, a podcast. And, you know, we, we were marvelling at the time that actually COVID kind of brought us together in in, in some respects. Um, but actually, there was loads going on at the time. It was very uncertain. You know, we were this all- is making us sound like
1: a, a, a couple out of them. But we uh, to put to put in a bit of uh, historical context. Adam and I did our um, master's degree, hadn't we? About that's right. Yeah. Six or seven years ago, yeah, about two thousand fifteen. Uh, yeah. Wow. Um, that's that long ago, and we were both mid-career, looking for kind of a how, how do we re-energize our teaching after, you know, both of us being teaching well over a decade, but both of them being in the same school, which were neighboring schools. Mm -hmm. They're they're neighboring schools, but they're very different schools. um, And we realized we had a lot in common. And it was just, I think Adam heard me uh, on the radio ranting i would say was i was i ranting
2: well you've got you've got a certain style haven't you
1: <laughs> yes i have a certain style which uh on um, you know this is a nice calm version of my certain style i have been known to go uh full-blown what's aka affectionately known as paisley mode and mm. uh, when i can become extremely belligerent to bell cost and um i suppose uh um the full irish version of myself when things don't go my way and that's just i speak my mind and that's one of the reasons why i enjoy doing things like this because I want people to speak their mind and be honest about it, but I did find myself during the pandemic actually ringing international radio, Five Live, uh, LDC, um, I rang into local radio stations. And I just because I felt that the profession needed defending and it was something that was uh, I just felt that the voice wasn't there. And it's not a criticism of the unions, per se. They were trying to do their best. I just felt that our profession was under attack and we were being, you know, nudged back into schools. And, and I was trying to manage what I felt was, you know, different staff expectations. I, I was the union rep and, and school safety became extremely important, not just for the children, but for the adults and, and for the support staff. And I felt and I still do feel that we, we just got a little bit forgotten about. And, and that's why I just I just I just felt it was my job as as a teacher to defend and to, to put across the, the, the situation that was going on in schools. Uh, and that, obviously, that's how Adam and I reconnected when he heard, he heard my calls, and he says, right, we, we, we turn this into a podcast, and from this we now have me on Teachers Talk Radio. Um, because it is about the profession, it is about what we try and do as educators, and I love the profession, and I just don't think sometimes we get enough defence, and it's very easy to, for us to be criticised and it was really good to speak to the head of the union because there was a there was a lot of commonality there, and and I did put some quite difficult questions to Kevin, and that's one of the reasons why I'd like to get him back because we want one of the things about being a teacher is we strive for perfection a little bit, we strive to do things right and to do things better. We're constantly reflective people, aren't we? And what's interesting about this show is is that I do want to reflect a little bit on the experience that was the COVID crisis. Because I do think we have, in the eye of the storm, we've kind of moved on, but I don't think we've actually fully digested it. I, it's a bit like living through the, the, the traumatic experience that it was. I don't think we have fully kind of come to terms with the with the, the things that have changed and equally the lessons learned. And that's one of the reasons why I, I do want to speak to Karen because he is somebody who is still in my mind, um, talking about it, he's still trying to come to terms with it, he's still trying to get some changes, he's still trying to to fight for school safety using his platform, and that's why I'd be very interested to see um, why he's continuing to campaign for school safety, because I think it's an area that is neglected. Um, A couple of statistics on it is that our schools still need about £15 billion worth of renovations to bring themselves up to livable standards and I have actually listened to a couple of teacher talk radio shows about even new builds. It was a fascinating one a couple of weeks ago that uh, Tom was doing and he was talking to a, a teacher who, head teacher, who got, he got a brand new build school and he says it's not even fit to use, they, they're struggling to use it um, because of some of the, the, the shoddy building work. So we have the sixth wealthiest country in the world and one of the things that's always niggling away at me is why is our education system just not as good as it should be. And I look at the fabric of the buildings themselves and I think one school to another doesn't seem to have a consistency. And I do believe that was a little bit of what we saw during COVID, where one school was doing you know, health and safety very much well and other schools weren't, and you were hearing different stories. Uh, And that's what I do want to engage with any of you listeners and tell me your COVID story and tell me how you got through the global pandemic as a teacher, as an educator, and what lessons you Um, have have felt from it? And and what would you take from it? Um, So that's going to be later on at 1.30. Karim and I will have a a quick interview. Uh, For the moment now, we're going to go to the news. um, And then after the news, we'll have a little chat, Adam and I, about our COVID experiences and and a little bit of a chronological take-through of from March 2020 to even to today, when I still have some of my colleagues at the moment who are actually you know um tested positive for covid i think um one of our our teacher talk radio hosts is currently covid positive at the moment so it's it's something that is still with us and it's not at the same heightened sense that it was say this time last year but it's still there isn't it i still think that we have to uh, be mindful of of i think the likes of air quality and the likes of ventilation i do still think i want to have that conversation about ventilation because i think about ventilation, something that came out of um, the COVID crisis was about air quality in schools, and that good air quality makes for a good learning environment. And actually, the amount of CO two and, and the air quality can affect the learners, and, and that's something I took from it. Was um, you, you know how you how good the, the fresh air getting into the classroom and, and learning to the children, and that after a certain amount of um, CO two in the uh, eight hundred per parts per or whatever it is. Um, that's the point where it it affects concentration levels. And certainly something happened this summer that really kicked my kind of safety into schools and and how our schools are are currently organized is when we had 40 degree temperatures in classrooms. You had 40 degree temperatures in classrooms. And and, and we we realized that some parts of our school buildings just weren't fit for purpose. Now, not to go down a different complete topic which would be climate change but in a world that we are seeing extreme temperatures our actual physical fabric of our buildings our civilization itself is just not set up for that but a school when you have children in those type of buildings and certainly when you can't get air quality and it made me think if we had had those ventilation systems in that we were promised during covid that would have made those buildings a lot more livable but then not comes back to our point about what Kevin was talking about last week and obviously the connection of different issues. That it comes down to budgeting and it comes down to the political will. And it comes down to the individual teachers themselves to campaign for this type of thing. You know, how important is air quality? Does it get lost in the ether? Or is it not one of those things that we will just forget about and not realise that actually if we change that or did something about that then air quality could improve in schools could have massive impact on on the outcomes of the children. So I'll go to the news and then we'll have a little chat with us after that.
0: This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you, too, through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles, and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.wetherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more.
3: If you're listening to this, then we know we share one thing in common. A passion for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves. That's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care. We need people like you to help us achieve even more. With us, you'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. We are Witherslack Group. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to hear from you. Visit wwwwitherslackgroupcouk forward slash careers and be part of our future.
0: This is Teachers Talk Radio. And this is Teachers Talk Radio News.
3: The Christian Institute website reports that MPs have backed a push to ensure that state schools in England uphold the legal requirement to teach religious education, which, in most cases, reflects the centrality of Christianity. MP Martin Vickers led a Westminster debate on the issue and drew attention to the National Association of Teachers of RE on the Department for Education 2021 School Workforce Census. The Census revealed that one in five schools did not teach RE at all in Year 11, despite being required to do so by law. An average of 10% of schools gave no time to RE in the years 7, 8 or 9. MP Nick Fletcher said that, without an understanding of Christianity, It is not possible to understand the foundations of our institutions and laws or British culture. He went on to outline that other religions should be properly recognised in the preparation of RE syllabus, but that RE needs to recognise the particular place of Christianity in Great Britain. Mr Fletcher cited other demands placed on schools and failures by Ofsted to hold schools to account as the reason for letting RE slip. In response, Nick Gibb, a minister in the DfE, said all mainstream state-funded schools are required to teach RE. Schools that are not are acting unlawfully or are in breach of their funding agreement. He also added that collective worship was an important part of school life. Mr Gibb further reiterated the government's commitment to mandatory collective worship in RE, but also a parent's right to withdraw their children from the subject. Earlier this year, a judge ruled that exclusively Christian RE lessons in Northern Irish primary schools is unlawful, after a legal challenge was launched. The decision is being appealed as it dismissed the parent's right to withdraw their child from these lessons. In Lincoln, the Investigate Learning team at Lincoln Castle have been recognised for the outstanding learning programme they offer schools, colleges and universities. The Sandford Award recognises museums, galleries, and historic buildings that offer the very best programmes aligned with the national curriculum. This year, the castle has welcomed around 8,000 pupils and students, teaching them about the medieval monument's history. The Sandford Awards Lead Assessor described the insight the programme offers as unique and compelling. The programme covers a series of locally and nationally significant history, ranging from the medieval world and Magna Carta To the treatment of prisoners in Victorian England, bringing it vividly to life in a way that resonates with learners. In a recent news report on Teachers Talk Radio, we covered the global world skills competition which is taking place in various countries across the globe. This past week, the UK was hosting for the first time in over 10 years. Competitors have travelled from around the world to compete in aircraft maintenance and manufacturing in Cardiff and Wrexham. Finalists had the opportunity to visit various places of interest in the local areas, including countryside, museums, and an old coal mine. These young competitors have been training for the last three years to win medals and showing off their skills. The UK entrants feature homegrown Welsh talent with George Denman from Swansea telling FE Week how he hopes competing in world skills will be a huge boost to his career because it teaches key skills like coping under pressure, working as a team, and time management. Finally, new research reveals the impact of accent on social mobility. The latest report from Accent Bias in Britain project led by Queen Mary University London's Professor Deviana Sharma reveals that more than a quarter of senior professionals from working class backgrounds have been singled out in the workplace for their accent. The project examines the impact that someone's accent has on their journey through education and into the workplace. Professor Sharma says the research shows that accent-based discrimination actively disadvantages certain groups at key points. This creates a negative cycle reinforcing anxiety and marginalisation. The report recommends that action should be taken to diversify the workplace to ensure a range of accents is prevalent in organisations. Further details of the report can be found on the Queen Mary University of London website. This has been your Teacher's Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. So, uh, some very interesting um, stories there, actually. And uh, I, I cannot not
1: on the, the, the story about how uh, social mobility and accent, um, having lived in uh, England for 21 years. Via living in Australia, living in America, Um, on how accent is interesting because over the years my my accents always uh, either got me into trouble or got me out of trouble, sometimes both. Um, But it's interesting how um, teaching in the Midlands, I've taught well over 18 years, and what I've noticed is this is quite interesting that some of my most socially mobile and, and successful children. And who go to the Russell Group universities, or they sometimes end up in the, the Oxbridge universities. What's interesting is when I see them a couple of years later, I've noticed a subtle change in their accent um, to such an extent it's quite marked. And, and I had this conversation with one of my ex-pupils recently. He's gone to Oxbridge. And I said, why, why, why are you speaking like this? You, you, you know, it's Bath all of a sudden. And, and this, is, this is a child from a, quite a, a working-class background. He's, 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 he's kind of, you know, done well, very, very well. Um, to 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 do what he's done and, and he says to fit in at, with my friends at university he felt that he had to change his accent which is I think that's what people do don't they they, they sort of uh, they have to change it but I think that our children do that at school don't they they um, they speak to us teachers differently to how they speak to their parents and then of course they speak very differently to how they speak to their friends so I think it's something quite important isn't it that unfortunately we're, works on a subconscious level that people still, John accent and I know we shouldn't but it's just a bit of a common sense thing isn't it um but I've been told uh, I, my accents a good one so that's that's over that's all very well I can I can I can live with that um, depending on your point of view so um we'll be talking to Karen in about 10 minutes and and we'll be asking him questions about this idea of misinformation disinformation and current situation of COVID in schools, we'll be going through the historical kind of um, how did we get through the COVID crisis. And, And I want to recall that moment on March the 23rd, I think it was, when we finally got the call that that was it, schools were closing. And I remember thinking to myself, why are we not going earlier? Because the previous week there was a trail off. There was a definite sort of, you know, some children were coming in and obviously some parents had realised what was going to happen and they started keeping their kids off. So there was a natural rundown. And I remember that was people last minute going to the pub last minute. There was the the football match that was played in Liverpool. There was the horse racing events. There was a definite feeling that something was going to happen. And I remember thinking to myself, why have the schools not closed? Because, friends of mine over on the, uh, the other side of the water, Ireland was closed a week and a half earlier. And I was like, why, why, why are UK schools the last to close? And, it, and if you look on the, the, the timeline of that, we had a two week lag time between Italy, you know, we all saw what was going on in Italy. They were locked into their apartments and saw what was happening in Spain. But there's a kind of a bit like in, in the Second World War, a phony war. So the historians would know this is that nothing happened, you know, 1939 um, after the war was declared. You know, the, the Germans and, and, and the British went at it, you know, a year or so later. But the period in between was called the phony war. It felt like that with COVID. We were waiting for it to happen, it was waiting for it to hit. And many now look back and suggest that was a mistake, that they should have locked down earlier. But there we were. We were now. What do we do? What, what, and it was so confusing. I remember, what's my job now as a parent, a father, husband, teacher? Where do I go with this? You know, I, I want to do my job because this is the thing part of me was wanting schools to be shut down. But the other part of me was like, no. You know, I want to I go into the classroom, I want to do my job, I want to make sure that I'm there. Because something. that's what we are, we're public servants, we're people that, you know, do put ourselves out there. So there was a, there was a definite feeling of last minute planning of, right, okay, how, we have to keep the school open for these children who are your vulnerable children. And we had lists of children We said, right, we've got to look after this child, look after this child. And then it's like, what, 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 what precautions do we take? And everything was just so slapdash. And it was not the fault of the school. It was just, we weren't getting the information. So eventually, of course, we got ourselves organized and we got the, the into a system, into a rota, and the roads were empty, people were locked down, and school was still open. There were a handful of children in school and there was always a, a couple of members of staff with those children at all times. And then we were setting work at home. And it was a difficult time, wasn't it? We all remember how difficult the world stopped and, and held its breath, and, and then it hit. And it was difficult, wasn't it? But it was the that wasn't so much the difficult part. It was the what happens after that. What happens when we started coming out of the, the lockdowns, the gradual releasing back of the lockdowns, and that was the difficult part of how we then had to go back into schools. And I remember, okay, what's different about schools? And one of the things that I found quite striking was you go to your supermarket and everything was so laid out. You know what I mean? Masks and and you had uh, one way systems and. and Perspex glass everywhere. And all you know, it was like a different world straight away. Businesses and, and supermarkets were completely different overnight. Schools, eh, kind of what had changed? A hand sanitizer, maybe? Open the odd window. It just didn't feel that there was a rule for schools and a rule for everything else. And and again, it's not the fault of the head teachers, it was the guidance that was coming from government. And it was quite shocking, you know, you had guidance in the real world, outside school, it was different from guidance in school. It was like, what, what, what is it? Is a school like a different place? It, it, does COVID not come into schools? So there was an element of kind of like contradiction. And that was the confusing nature of what it was like, wasn't it? In, in, in education sector, we were, well, how can I, you know, I had situations where colleagues of mine eventually were, you know, not able to get married um, without having, you know, 15 people there, but, you know they just come from the day before teaching children in a small room and 30 people there or you you have one situation where you had to mask up on public transport but then there's no requirement to wear a mask when in school so you'd wear a mask when you go to public transport to get on a bus which would be running at you know 25 capacity and then you come into a school you know, and you're in a small tiny school with hundreds of children and no mask to be seen and i just Felt We all did, didn't we, that there was, a, there was a situation where it was quite tricky in education. And I will admit that I was more safety conscious than I'd probably ever been in my life because, not for my own safety, it was for the safety of people like my parents. and I wanted to see my parents, my dad's COPD emphysema, so he gets COVID. That's it. He, he was gone. And there were so many others in the community like that. We, we have children, of course, who were... You know immune suppressed and you had children who weren't well your children with breathing difficulties you know and this idea that you're hearing from the government that children kids don't get it kids don't spread it it didn't add up and it led me to start making phone calls into social media and <laughs> one angry phone call which i i will play later on to you is is, is me ringing into to lbc and basically saying we need a, a circuit breaker it was october 2020 They've done a circuit breaker in schools in Northern Ireland. I think they've done a circuit breaker in schools in Scotland, but they were talking about you know, doing a circuit breaker in schools in England. And it was like, well, what's different about English children? Why like, why are children in Northern Ireland and children in Scotland are, are they a completely different in another part of the United Kingdom? Or, I mean, are they a different person or a different species? Or, or you know, why would children in one country be different to children in another? And and why were you getting different contradictory advice in, in two different parts of the United Kingdom, it was very strange and that's why it, it drove me to ring up and demand that the circuit breaker needed to happen to take infection rates down in schools because that uh, that September, October, November, we we started back September 2020, not too bad actually after the summer, but of course summer being summer, people are outdoors, healthier, but as soon as we got to about October, November, it was boom, it was happening again and it was that, that part that felt like we were going to head towards um, Christmas and there was all the talk about where we would have Christmas and infection rates kept going up and you were getting the statistics like one third of all infections were being driven by schools and you're thinking well there's nine million kids in education a million adults it's like one in six or one in seven of the populations in schools with very little to you know wash your hands and, and sanitize your hands in an airborne virus it just didn't make a lot of sense so I remember ringing in to, 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 to national media to say why aren't we not doing a circuit breaker uh, and in ventilation, you know, we started seeing German schools putting in ventilation systems around November 2020. And we're like, "Well, why are German children getting ventilation systems? Why are Americans putting ventilation systems in New York?" And then the advice we were getting was, "Open a window." Great if you have a window, but that was the thing was it, it was almost like different rules for different places, and contradictory to the kind of advice that you were being given out. You know, follow the science, follow the rules, follow the science. And, and education just felt completely different, completely sort of left out, and almost why? I, and I and the, the, the official line was is that kids don't spread it, but there was always the forgetting of okay, kids don't, but who stands in front of the children is is us. So I've just got uh, Karan, and he's just. A, but I think he's just invited. Oh you know, yeah, let me just check. I think he's he's here, and um, let me just send invite as a speaker and. Excellent. He should be ready and willing to talk. Good afternoon, cram. Oh, Almost uh, Oh. Good afternoon. Let's just check. Oh, we have, he's entered the room, he is here, and I have invited him to speak, um, but we must be having a few technical difficulties. Um, Karam, are you there, my friend? Hello, my friend.
2: I think the listeners are getting a real insight here, Brent, into the uh, technical issues that you can have on a live yeah, radio. Well, you
1: know, these things happen. Um, he is here. Let's see, can I send him another invite? Yeah.
2: Uh, Just while we're waiting for him to kind of um, tune in, I do think that everyone's got their own unique experiences and insights into COVID. So if you do want to send us a message or call in, uh, feel free, please feel free to do so. Uh, we'd love to hear from uh, more people um otherwise it's just me and Brent sat here kind of talking <laughs> to ourselves <laughs> yeah. um but yeah i mean it was an um, incredible experience uh, to go through i mean i was i was actually moving jobs brent at the time you were if 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 you remember then. and um you know it it didn't really dawn on me kind of what happened until the night before The interview. I went to get some food for my daughters because their schools catering services uh, couldn't uh, facilitate um, the lunchtime shift the, the following day. And we went to the Sainsbury's up the road, and the cupboards were absolutely bare. And then it was a kind of a real heart in mouth moment, where you're thinking, "What is going on here? We are kind of we've moved up a level in terms of." Um, where are we going as we going as a country here? What what where where is all the stuff? Um, people because of that, you know, potentially lack of information. Um, the politicians not really kind of uh, leading us at that moment. I think people kind of made decisions themselves, and um, you know, and then that was just after, if you remember, Brent uh, the whole uh, toilet roll uh, oh uh, situation word. as well which interestingly, I was talking to somebody in Austria a couple of weeks ago, and uh, they had the same the same issue. So it wasn't a U- UK um, issue, toilet roll. It was a kind of, it went through the whole world where people just went for toilet roll as they kind of go-to go to supplies.
1: Yeah, that, that whole thing was extremely strange, the pasta as well. And I realized that how pasta was important because the kids eat pasta. But it was, it, the thing that there was, it was you saw the good side of things. I saw a lot of my colleagues just step up, absolutely amazing, completely selfless. Um, and one of the things that struck me was how different people were in different places. We saw that you know some people were um, very, very, very much quick to jump in and do as much as they could. Uh, they, they, they tried as much as possible to help others quite selflessly and then you saw others who you retreated it was just whatever i think the media of course was, was constant in this and, and some people got you know very safety conscious and, and it impacted um on them mentally and i, I will say that there was a there was a mental health crisis as a result of this and then you, you saw others who had less fears uh, i personally had less fears i was more scared for other people because I suppose one of the legacies of growing up in a conflict situation where I grew up with I don't kind of feel you know social anxieties and fears. I'm more of a chuck me in and let me swim type of person, but that would be because I grew up in a in a heightened heightened situation myself. But one of the things I had to appreciate trying to manage different people was they were in a different place. You know, there were some people who just physically could not set foot in school to start off with. It was a really difficult thing to get people back in, the same with some of the children. And when you look at the numbers, we have lost... Hundred thousand children, you know, to to COVID safety, but we also had the other side of things where we saw some people going down the Facebook, Karen, the YouTube, uh, I know everything that's going on type of paranoia, and and and, and I don't say that lightly. I, there was a lot of second guessing and, and people getting very triggered about a lot of things with COVID, and a lot of misinformation, which leads us into, hopefully, um. Karam has connected. He is here, and he is able to speak. If he, if he can speak, hopefully each... can can you hear oh. me now? I can, my friend. Nothing oh, really last. There we are. Do you know, nothing better than a, a, a login log out. It's the equivalent of a reboot, isn't it? Yeah. So we don't have many bills yet. Is your wife okay? Everything? Are we? we we're not. We're not.
4: We're we're not going to get a phone call anytime soon for the next generation oh, well as things currently stand no she's uh, she's just had her breakfast and she's uh, uh relaxing upstairs at the moment so at the moment yeah we're we're fine who knows when we'll get interrupted though there's 2 days Brilliant. till we do that now
1: Two days. Oh my word! You're just biting your nails now, hoping for the best. And uh it's the most amazing thing in the world. It's it's it. It changes you being a parent. Uh, it changes you as an educator as well because you, you're on the other side of the fence. It makes parents' evenings quite different when you're you're going. Can I cut to the chase? I know this line. I use this line myself. Can we have a bit more of a frankly honest conversation about my child? So it's 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 interesting when you you become a parent and you're involved in education because it does change, and also it makes you more um, want to make the world a better place. Which, considering you're, you're a your, your CV is impressive. The, the stuff that you do, the amount of stuff you get involved in, your passion for it. It's, it's one of the reasons why I invite, I invite you on. We, we've spoken before you and I and shared a platform and, and I thought you've got a lot of bundle of energy and, and you, you've definitely got what I would consider that grit between your teeth about the misinformation around COVID. So I want to explore that at one stage, but I want to get a bit of a background on you as well. You are an ex NEU executive. You're currently misinformation, disinformation uh, advocate, safer schools advocate, um, freelance journalist in education. Anything else I'm missing there? I think that's um,
4: pretty much. Well, I currently, well, I'm still, I've still got my normal job. I'm still working full time in a mainstream comprehensive secondary school. And what subject? Um, I'm doing cover at the moment. Um, I'm a science, science and maths are my, my specialties. Um last year last year and the year before I was running um, an alternative provision unit within the mainstream secondary school and an accelerate learning program for vulnerable kids that had real struggles over lockdown um, so but I'm currently doing cover as things currently stand.
1: Well, that's uh, that's a very big thing to have done, especially with you. Know, we know that we know how much some of our children suffered during during the, the, the COVID situation, with especially the loss of routine. I've noticed that the, the 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 our neurodivergent children, autistic children, and and ironically, some of the children with complex needs actually coped with COVID very well because they were home I and mean, then we were doing remote learning. I, I actually found some of our children um could have been educated at home, actually not in mainstream sometimes, and found it a lot more conducive to them. And I don't know one example of that where that the child thrived at home because they had parents with them while we were doing the lessons and there was no no hurly burly around school and they felt comfortable and, and, and it's interesting that one of the one of the things I was hoped that was going to change after COVID was that we, we could have looked at blended learning. I think there was an opportunity missed, you know, to try and think, re- reimagine education possibly to set something up that would be suiting some children. The one-size-fits-all, was what, what I'm saying, is it doesn't always work. And during COVID, we found ways, didn't we? We kind of jury-rigged systems and found ways to work around things. And some children actually did quite well. During COVID, ironically, because they didn't have to come into school, and I noticed that the statistics on the number of people, children who are homeschooled now, has gone up as a result of that, which is quite interesting. Um would you agree with that? Or would you? What do you think? Is that is that about right? Or I,
4: I certainly, you sort, certainly saw that with some of the pupils. One of the things that I found was we'd uh, just before lockdown we'd taken on um, several students, so we had the whole year out of education. Um, school refusers with um, lots of anxiety and and few other issues like lots of house moves and that kind of thing. And uh, several of them, we managed to get into a really good routine, and we actually managed to get their attendance right up. Because one of the things they liked was the fact that there was less pupils in the school, um, and they were having issues with their interactions with other pupils. So that smaller smaller environment we got, we had the special unit set up, a little little corner of the school just for us. Um, and we managed to really, really up the attendance rate for some of those pupils, um, which goes against some of the prevailing narratives, I'd say. Well, we, we had similar experience. It was, it
1: was quite, you know, our vulnerable children, we had only a handful of children in school and some of our most, you know, dependent children. And they actually got one-to-one. They, they, they got quite an intensive input. We went out and built, with some of our children, we went out and built a, 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 an eco-garden. And, and they, they were painting pallets. They were chopping down trees. We, we had them doing all sorts of stuff because outdoors was obviously better, wasn't it? Because that was the whole thing. And, and during some of those, that, that really sunny weather, I'll never forget. It was one of those COVID memories. I am out, I'm outdoors painting palettes with a child who probably was most likely to knock over said pallets. And I remember asking this child this question, going like, what would you do now if somebody come over and knocked those pallets over? And the look on this child's face, like, sir, but we did this together. You know, uh, uh, why would they do that? And I thought, wow, you know, th- this is something that is positive because we, 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 we were able to educate in a slightly different way, but we had the time to talk to some children. That was, was one of the positives, and, and I, I have to be careful when I say positives of COVID, but it actually was. There was, there was a, a reimagining of things, and literally we had to come up with better ways of doing things. And, we, and I, I, I have to say my colleagues are absolutely amazing. It was like we had to do teams and learn how to do teams in less than a week you know, completely different way of teaching, completely different way of, of trying to do things. And, and and it was constantly, constantly shifting and changing, wasn't it? And, and I think the teacher profession did nobly. What was hurting me was was the constant narrative, and that's what I move on to, the constant narrative coming from government that seemed to sort of have a blind spot about schools. Um, what have you, because I know you're very hot on this, What have, what is your take on their attitude towards schools, in particular, during COVID?
4: It's It's a dereliction of duty really. Um, but there, there's been a complete uh, negligence towards the, the health of staff and students. Um, one thing that is interesting as well is we got a lot of very fake statistics about the, uh, like the risk of teachers being infected and our risk of harm. Um, where lots of where you saw headlines appear and when you drill down into the, into the actual data and what are being presented, there'd been some quite disingenuous use of that. One of the examples was the um, Occupational Death Survey. So it was looking at uh, the amount of people that had died in different professions, and they put education into one big bundle, which gave us uh, statistically no greater risk than any other occupation. But if you drill down in those figures, they'd included university lecturers, and all sorts of which were working completely online, and lots of other elements of education. If you just took primary and secondary school teachers, our risk was very similar to a frontline healthcare worker.
1: I remember that actually. That was the was that the Cambridge University data, wasn't it? And and that and when we drilled into it, from my memory, TAs were statistically higher than most, weren't they? Because um, and I can say this anecdotally, our TAs were, you know, getting closer to the children and obviously had less opportunity to socially distance. So I did notice that. That came out in the data, especially our support staff um, did suffer a lot more. But there was always that narrative, and um, the kids don't get it, the kids don't spread it. Um, At the beginning, which uh, I have a phone call later on, which will play me ringing into LBC when when a member of the general public was arguing with me that kids don't get it, kids don't spread it. And I said, well, kids do get it because at that moment in time, I was being self-isolating because there were two children in my child's class who actually got it. and, And my child was only in year one at that stage. So there was, you were hearing one thing and then you were experiencing something completely different in schools. So then the question is then, why, why did they do that? Why, why? what was the, the importance of schools to the government? Was it the fact that it was economic? Some would say, look, at the end of the day, you know, we need, to, schools need to be there. They're 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 so key to society and that, you know, we needed schools to be open. And I, I'll be honest, as much as part of me um, didn't want to go back in, part of me did want to go back in because I wanted to be in front of the children. And a lot of teachers felt the same way. They wanted to be back in the classroom regardless of the risks because they felt, you know, it was difficult to do what we're doing at home. And there was a... I found some staff in one way who were very I, I can't do this, and other staff just put us back in. So there was no universal feeling completely within the whole teaching profession. Everybody was a little bit different about this. But why do you think the government was, in your opinion, um, so reckless about you know teachers are you know TAs and education sector's health then?
4: Um, I, I think there was part of it was like the drive for, for normality. They wanted everybody to get back to normal. And if you've got lots of measures and mitigations in schools, that sends the wrong message out to parents. Um, the actual um, Department for Education guidance that was written for the June 2020 and the September 2020, we've pursued that to see where it was written. And the Freedom of Information request, that took a very long time to get an answer to, um, told me that uh, the Department of Education did not write the school's guidance for June or September of 2020. It came from elsewhere, so another department. Um, I have, got, I have happened to have uh, a friendly voice inside the Department of Education, a, a civil servant, and they, they sent me a load of messages explaining that uh, decisions were coming from outside the department, they thought it was from the Treasury, and there was that kind of pressure coming from the Treasury to make those decisions. Um, But the Department for Education did not have a single meeting to discuss the writing of guidance for either of those two times when we came back.
1: Well, the thing with the guidance was, and and. If anybody's a head teacher's listening to this, you are absolutely mm-hmm. amazing the last couple of years. Any head teacher is just, you know, they were pulling their hair out, whatever hair they had left, because the guidance was coming loose and fast. And I remember the Christmas uh, 2020, 2021. Um, and we subsequently found out they were having parties, weren't they? The, the Department of Education. Mm-hmm. But there was that. And I remember my whole Christmas was ruined because it was constantly waiting for, you know, the testing kits, because that was the, the, we were going to get the testing kits in and we were going to test the kids. And it was, What's, what's coming next? It just felt like what's coming next. And we were still waiting for the guidance to come from the start of January. And we were going back to school. And I think it was no ifs, no buts. We're going back to school on the 4th of January, wasn't it? And, and we have to do our duty. Schools are fine. And the next day, if I recall, and you might back me up on this, the prime minister then says, no, we, we closed. we're going to close schools. Can you explain to me how that actually then happened? How could they in one day... Turn around and say, you know, schools are safe, and the next day schools weren't safe. And, and equally, you, you know, why? How did they get away with that? To be honest with you, because that's kind of disingenuous that they were able to say one day schools were, were safe and fine, and the next day schools weren't safe.
4: Well, it, it doesn't where where they've got that advice from. So you look through from say you look through through the sage documents, and the sage documents have been quite clear since since around May twenty twenty that they believe that schools produce are. Uh, contribute significantly to transmission. Now that's very different to what is written on a part of like the Public Health England website. So there's always been a contradiction between the official government message, what's coming out of what is now UK Health Security Agency and what SAIDs themselves were saying. It's a huge disconnect right from the start, which has never, never been resolved and never been fully explained. Then on top of that, you've got another body, that joint biosecurity centre, which has never produced a single minute. Um, it took a lot of effort just to find out who is on it. And I don't think that will provide any documentation to the code inquiry coming up as well. So that's the issue is that there's, everything is so murky. Because um, before that we had the, the, we had Greenwich Council, didn't we? Greenwich Council wanted a couple of, close a couple of days early for Christmas. That's right, and yeah. And threatened with, threatened with legal action. Now, once yeah. again, Department, um, Freedom of Information requests were sent off for that. And once again, we came asking for the data to back that up. Um, and they got a response back of Jenny Harris' reply to the um, Freedom of Information request, but she only provided her interpretation of the data. They never released the data that she said that she was looking at. And some of that was a bit strange. So she turned around and said that one of the reasons why schools in London had to stay open was closing them may end up increasing the infection rate because children wouldn't have access to testing. But we didn't start testing kids until we're in the new year. That's right. So yeah. that, that, that's, a, yeah. that's a contradiction, So there was no. We we had a, We then put in another freedom of information request and said, "Well, was there some testing trials on?" There's a handful of schools in London that were doing trials for for the rapid flow testing still. But I don't even know if any of them were in. we were in the boroughs that had asked to close down early. So, once again, there, there's the no evidence. They cannot provide the evidence to justify their decision-making, which is why it's a political choice that they've made. Because if they had the evidence there to back them up, they would have released it.
1: So there's a disconnect between what the evidence was saying about schools, which was not there, and also anecdotally what we in education were feeling and seeing versus what the official line was and, and what the the media line was and, and i'll be honest that was one of the reasons why you know you and i came across each other because i started you know making phone calls into to every 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 media station i could get a hold of saying this is the current situation in schools and i know um section 44 that when did the neu start looking at section 44 where they were suggesting that schools were unsafe was it around that time? I think that, that the NEU threaten threatened that unsafe workplace and they would they would they would invoke section forty four. Did that come a bit later?
4: Um, well, initially we were it was um, it was on the cards at the very start of the very first lockdown in March when when we were heading to, when we had our, our herd immunity march where we were considering just ignoring the pandemic and cracking on with it we did prepare all of the the legal guidance on Section 44. So when when it came back down to winter, we kind of dusted it off and then briefed our our, um, grant secretaries and regional officers and all of the reps, and we did prepare. And on that fourth, thousands and thousands of primary school teachers independently sent in their Section 44 letters saying that they felt that they had a a reasonable reasonable belief that they were at risk by coming into school. And I think that's what pushed their hand because the secondary schools were going back a day or so later and we'd also done Mm -hmm. a similar briefing for that as well. So I don't think they'd have been able to keep schools open because they wouldn't have had enough staff um, even if, if, we'd, if we'd have, like, relented and just all gone into school, considering the infection rates at the time, within a week or so, most schools would have been shut because too many people would have been sick anyway. That's that's the madness of the whole situation, the constant idea that schools could pretend that there isn't a pandemic and carry on as normal, when you need to have adults in the building to safeguard the children before you even think about education. And that's that keeps, constantly keeps getting forgotten about.
1: Well, it's the nurseries as well because what I'm, I had the full I had the full flow of I needed nursery to look after my children because my wife's a she's a medical healthcare professional mental health healthcare professional so we're both key workers so that means our two children needed to be in nursery now nursery infection rates were you can guess what was going on there so then I. I needed nursery to look after our children to allow me to then go into secondary school to look after other people's children. And of course, you know, if my wife gets that, I'm locked down there, you're losing teacher. And then, of course, if it goes through nursery and you can guess that, you know, where was it coming from? The first cases that came into our household came via the primary school and again, the. Uh, um, I actually didn't get it until March 2021. I don't know how. And that's just the thing that's very confusing, isn't it? There was, you know, there was no rhyme or reason, wasn't there, to who actually got this and when they got it. There were some people that went all the way through and didn't get it. And there was other people who seemed to get hit a couple of times. It was... It was quite, quite strange, and I still find it quite strange, actually, how some, and that was one of the calls I made in, that the, that the caller was saying, well, you know, people in, in the same household sharing the same space didn't seem to get COVID. And then there was a definite lot of confusion, which, which then fed into at the Facebook, Karen, YouTube type of misinformation stuff that you saw going around as well, it, what's really happening. And I don't think government helped or clarified the situation, and the constant changing, I think, made things even more confusing for people, to be perfectly honest with you. What is your take, then, on the the misinformation? Do you think it was on purpose? Do you think it was just that they didn't know what they were doing? Do you think there was something malign in it, or were they just basically trying to keep education going as much as possible?
4: Well, if I I, I personally, I I think there is... um, but they haven't really got over the principle of herd immunity strategy. They still kind of believe that uh, large scale infections within children is somehow beneficial to them, and you see that with the with the way the narrative changed. We spent like the whole of twenty twenty being told that children aren't getting infected in high numbers. Transmission isn't an issue. Um, the ONS looked at looked into attack rates. and They found that. Uh, Children were, were the most likeliest people to bring infection into the household for other people to get infected. That report, because it didn't fit the narrative, that just that just got, got dropped and barely reported on. But it was very clear what the ONS has said. Then uh, people working for Public Health England produced a complete own set of results and said don't don't pay attention to the ONS, pay attention to these. Children aren't getting infected in mass. But the official line from, from the the advisor to the UK Health Security Agency is still that over ninety percent of children infections do not occur at school. They're still they're still having that line. They recently put out another report saying that masks do not work at all. Um, they're arguing, and if we really wanted to keep schools open, they would have invested in <coughs> ventilation and air filters, which are clear. The evidence is really is really stark now that for countries that bother to put clean air into their into their classrooms are beneficial to the children's health, not just for COVID, but for allergies, for other illnesses. You know, we're, we're not doing anything at the moment to protect our children's health, and we're just ignoring a large, an increasing body of evidence that we're, we're, we're at danger of doing really long-term harm to our children's health. Um, as we look at, like, the damage done to immune systems, because there's, there's this now whole uh, immunity debt debate going on, which it seems to be entirely fabricated from a year ago. Like, it's really difficult keeping track of all of the different moving parts.
1: Well, it is because I know you have got to be in your bonnet about a certain lobbying organisation, which I won't mention, obviously, because they're not here to defend themselves. But there is individuals who seem to have, and individual organisations that definitely seem to have um, a connection to important members, political members, who were driving, you know, no masks in school, you know, no face snappies, this and i know particularly that you know a lot of schools had problems with some parents of course saying your my child will not be wearing this you know and and, and it was difficult to you know you're trying to manage hundreds of hundreds of people and, and come to a balance between health and safety the evidence the government guidance and the people of the community you're servicing who are all in a very different place it was a nightmare because for some people you you went too far and for others you just didn't go far enough and it was it was it was absolutely terrible wasn't it to try and work in education and just find that middle ground where you're trying to keep everybody safe and you're trying to meet the requirements of, of certain you know the certain parents demands and it was really and it still is really tough because even to this day, there are those who are so far down the conspiracy theories areas, they still haven't believed that this exists, that you know, masks don't work, you're right, and that ventilation, you know, opening a window doesn't help. And and I still, like yourself, I'm still trying to get my head around it. And one of the reasons why I wanted to have this conversation is I think we've all moved on and haven't processed it and haven't, and the key thing is it's such a teacher thing, it's the teacher in me. I want to know. What lessons are learned? And if this happened again, what would they do differently? And and that's for me has to be the key thing. I don't mind if people make a mistake. I'm like that. I'm old school that way. If people make a mistake the whole time and say, look, it was moving parts. We made a mistake. We got it wrong. But this is what we would do differently next time. And I don't feel you could you can agree or disagree, I don't feel that we hear a lot of that, contrite, honesty, and literally, you know, that kind of situation. Why do you think then? There doesn't seem to be that reflection or that kind of... Are we waiting for the inquiry or do you think there's something else going on?
4: Um, I I think that one of the main issues is if you start... Lessons learned means an acceptance that mistakes have been made. Uh, And there is that kind of view with the way way politics is these days as well. All of these decisions are made by politicians. Politicians don't want to admit that they're, they're wrong is they're not allowed they're not allowed to get away with that um so we can't we can't learn lessons because that would be an acceptance of mistakes and guilt and when you're looking at the scale of the harm particularly you look over that that, that second wave that alpha wave how many people died how many people are are, are still suffering from long term harm like the the scale of suffering is so large um and so vast that, that the idea of taking any kind of culpability for that all oh, is it, worrying for a lot of people um, I also think it's the same with certain people within the scientific community who made some very, very poor predictions and very poor judgments. Um, you see a lot of but You see a lot of entrenchment now because, at the end of the day, the, the stakes were high, the, the consequences grim, and I think it's going to take a lot longer. You're probably looking like another five, ten years before people can kind of look back at things and evaluate them properly.
1: Do you... I'm going to go the other way. I'm going to play a devil's advocate a bit now. Um, do you think there are views out there that lockdowns were wrong? And, and there does seem to be a narrative brewing. And again, we're still, I think, in the middle of the eye of the storm of this, because it hasn't gone away, COVID, and we're still living with its impact. But there is that view that masks did social damage to children, lack of communication, that the best thing was to get things back to normal... And a lot of teachers felt that you know they couldn't wait to get back in their own classrooms. They couldn't wait to you know put the seating arrangements back. They couldn't wait to get the masks off the children. There was an element of oh, just just get, just 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 back to normal as quick as possible. We'll take the risks because we're doing more damage to the children by being too cautious. And and there is that that story that somehow of like we shouldn't have done this. That you know and and there are those out in the media very strong voices saying we should never have locked down the children. We should never, you know, they should have pursued the Swedish model. Um, yes, we, we should have followed through. And and, and I, I still think it's contested, isn't it? It's still live and it's still contested and schools are still caught in the middle of this kind of contested history. Um, But would you agree to some extent of some of what that opinion would have validity of, yes, you know, masks are, you know, they do cause problems for children equally. The lockdowns, did have secondary impacts or would you completely dismiss that?
4: Um, on masks, seeing that we've only ever looked at masks, we've only ever had masks in secondary schools, I don't I don't really I don't really buy any of the arguments for for masks um, as we use them. On lockdowns, lockdowns are a failure of uh, all of the other measures. They're m they're a measure of last resort. Now, our first lockdown, we, we reacted too slowly. We spent a we spent a couple of weeks playing with um, Herd immunity. We didn't start doing contact tracing. We didn't. We didn't uh, try and reduce the spread coming in from the country by cl- locking down our borders. So we ended up with a bigger wave, which meant it took us a longer period of time to to get cases down, so we could reopen schools. If we'd have managed that better and had a tighter lockdown, because lots of industries continued to work, things like construction was fully open, which meant that. It, took longer to get infections down to a safe level again. So we should have had a shorter lockdown at the start. The the winter lockdown, however, in twenty twenty, that 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 was a total failure of policy. That was an attempt to, to ignore the inevitable. We had exponential growth from September. Um we kept, kept constantly kept doing too little too late. Um we hadn't bothered after after stage and spent like six months saying you need to invest in ventilation and clean air in schools. There was no investment in clean air, uh, and ventilation in, in schools. If we'd have put the measures in place beforehand, if we'd have, we didn't adopt masks until after the second after the second lockdown, so putting those measures in early would we, we may have been able to, we may have been able to avoid. Uh, the second lockdown, that that was a failure of government policy by not reducing things. They could have, shut, like, they could have prioritised pubs by shutting pubs, shutting other things, and, but we didn't. And so so yeah. I think yeah. there are there are lessons to be learned. Also, there are there are some issues with like how schools went back. So in after the very first lockdown, when we went back in June, the government tried to do, uh, tried to have like. Um, Try to get all kids back before the summer holidays for full-time education, and that, that proved not to work. It didn't even have the support of the Tory councillors. Um, but what we should have done instead was we should have had, had we should have followed what what had been suggested of getting all kids back for two or three days every week, and put kids onto rotors. Because from mm. an educational point of view, we get those kids in, we do the bulk of the teaching in school, and then we send them home for like two days of like um Homework and reinforcing what we've taught there. It means that we get You're to talking blended. Kid.
1: That was blended, wasn't it? You're talking yeah. some kids at home getting blended learning. Reduce the capacity in schools, which allows for more social distancing, which allows for reduced transmission. Which then, yeah, that that was that was proposed, wasn't it? But it didn't seem to carry much as much weight. And I felt that was to do again with if you've got kids at home, then who looks after them? Type of scenario was there's a little bit of. I suppose what we're hinting at is, and you may agree or disagree with me, is I felt as a teacher that I was a childminder, that my job was to look after children um, in order to let society do what society needed to do, and therefore it was your job is to hold these children almost, you know, so that their parents could go back to work. And it it's still, I, I, I'll be honest with you, I still feel that way. And that's a personal opinion I have of myself. And it's something I I don't agree with that if they do believe that about us, it, because I'm an education professional, I wanted to teach children. I was deeply frustrated that the children weren't in my classroom. And, and I found the whole experience difficult. I, I really couldn't wait to get back and have 30 children in front of me. And part of me would have liked to have the the rolling program and the blended learning. But I'll be honest, part of me just wanted the kids back in the classroom and then sitting in front of me, their masks off and back to normal. And, so, and, and I was, I was, conf- I'm still, I'm conflicted. I'll be honest, I'm, I'm still conflicted. And I think a lot of us within the teaching profession were because we just wanted to be back doing our job, doing the thing that we enjoy the most, which is having those children sitting in front of us because the online learning, it was Okay. But long term, it was difficult. It was, you know, the kids weren't taking it as seriously as they should. They, You know, or could they have done that better? Could they have done the online learning better, do you think? Could it have worked if they had done the blended learning? Or is it never as good as, as I'm saying, being back in the classroom?
4: Um, it, if it was, uh, it's never going to be as good as being back in the classroom. But I think there are also were, like, things that could have been done better. So we found that. Uh... Early on with the lockdown, there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of calls for lots and lots, every lesson to be done like an online Zoom Zoom lesson, whereas some schools were setting reading tasks and sending home textbooks and that kind of thing. Um, and then what we found in our school was, in the second lockdown, we started to to get a lot of fatigue from children children spending five lessons in a in a row in in their rooms on on front of their computer and we found that that was starting to starting to have a, have an impact and we started getting requests from parents to do to set work which wasn't live we had so a lot of our creative subjects so things like uh drama, drama with the drama and art and technology music would set tasks that could be done without being on zoom as well to break up the kids day a little bit and that that seemed to go down quite well with parents that actually the the demand for five hours straight of live that the government wanted us to do didn't actually match up with what, what parents and children actually wanted. And I think, once again, it, it's the lack of communication. I think that's what's been frustrating through the whole time, is we don't feel like we've been listened to at any point in the last two years. Every, every suggestion we've made, every kind of input that we've had, everything's come from top down. Um, we haven't been listened to, and I think a lot of parents feel that that as well. Whether regardless of the, of their attitudes to whether lockdowns were a good idea or, or not a good idea, or their opinions on masks, I think overall the main issue is there's been a lack of engagement with, with with the primary stakeholders. Everything's come from government, and guidance has been written by people within Public Health England, and that no and none of that was done in collaboration. And I think that, that, that's the issue, isn't it? If you get all stakeholders around the table, we could have thrashed out something a lot better to deal with the various mm-hmm. issues that we've, we've encountered.
1: If you come to that balance then, couldn't you? You could, you could satisfy the different needs of different people. How far could we go? And, you, you, and that's that dirty word, isn't it? That the compromise word where we did do that in school. We had to sometimes compromise, you know, not safety, but say, look, it's just not appropriate for us to do that like one-way systems and things like that schools schools kind of played it by ear a little bit didn't the individual schools and individual headmasters because they the context of every school is different the context of the children the buildings themselves that's the all thing some of our schools you know with covid they've got new builds they have plenty of ways to socially distance or some of our older schools with old buildings i mean you can imagine the infection rates and in some of those overcrowded badly ventilated things which brings me to this question then I want you to imagine that you are the education minister. (laughs) Um, What lessons would you employ? If you had the the resources, say you you could do it. What things would you put in place now to say, look, should there be another pandemic, a fifth wave or another global pandemic or something else like this? What actions would you take and what things could you do? What lessons would you learn? And what could you put in place to make sure that it doesn't happen the way it happened before? I
4: think that, I think, what you really need is kind of resilience planning, because what we what we found in ed- education we've had, we've had 12 years of austerity in education, so we are we are kind of any kind of disruption at all causes a massive issue. All of all of our teachers' timetables are fu- are, are fully stacked up with lessons. There's very 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 little flexibility left left in in what the schools doing. We are we are kind of like all the fat has been trimmed off. Um, Workload is so high that, that things like moving over to remote learning was really difficult. Talking to educators in, in other countries where they've got a far better workload balance, it meant that it was a lot easier for them to do a lot of the things that we struggled to do in lockdown, like being able to contact all of our parents, talk to our children when they were off. Like A lot of parents wanted that kind of engagement, but there simply is is not enough time in the day when we've got such busy timetables and when we've got so much paperwork and workload as well. Um, just providing that kind of like smaller class, enough funding to have more staff, to have more PPA time, um, smaller class sizes, and then things like resources as well. Like what we couldn't do was when I was a kid, everybody had a textbook for every single subject at home. Mm-hmm. We don't we don't have that anymore. We don't have enough, to, enough money to be able to give every kid a textbook. That would have made... You know, children that didn't have access to, to laptops and routers could have just worked off a textbook like like I would have done like, like I did with all my homeworks when I was a kid before we had anything set online. Um, it, it's those kind of things. We just don't have any resilience left in our system. We need we really do need like we they've trimmed off all the fat and it's time that we we got fattened up again, really.
1: So that's pretty much what what Kevin's line was that last and my line to Kevin because I know that the the COVID czar was promised fifteen billion, wasn't he? And the COVID czar got one point four billion. Um, and the COVID czar walked at that stage. The COVID recovery czar that the government appointed to say let's get these kids caught up, and they promised lots of catch up funding, and they made lots of promises about how important children were. And fifteen billion was the roundabout figure that he said we need to get these kids back to where they were. And he got 1.4 billion. Um, we saw, of course, during the digital divide, we saw, of course, that the rogue algorithm and the examination systems, which seem to discriminate against children from disadvantaged backgrounds. And, we, and we've seen, again, children with neurodivergence and children with specific needs have struggled the most. It's like the most vulnerable children have suffered the most with COVID. But many would suggest that was because of lockdowns, masks. Do you see what I'm saying? Some will now say that wasn't the government. That, in the sense that it was that this was the COVID situation, i.e., they shouldn't have locked down, i.e., it was that the actions that they took damaged those children more. How would you counter that argument then? Uh,
4: well, apart from apart from the lockdowns, like a lot of schools, since we got rid of those measures, have still had to send hundreds of children home. Like my my school did after we after we got rid of uh the need to the, after all the measures removed and children no longer had to isolate we got absolutely hammered with COVID cases and we ended up having to send a couple of hundred kids home because we didn't have enough didn't have enough members of staff um just and this this we'll see it again over the winter as 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 cases increase and illness increases you'll find schools that simply run out of staff and have to send their children home so. It's just, it's just not living, living in reality, is it? We could It's not the measures that were causing the problems. It was the virus itself. If we didn't have the measures, you just have all. Rather than people isolating at home as they were close contact, or, or to reduce class sizes, then you just end up with, load everybody off because everybody's too sick to continue. Like yeah. we're seeing, we're seeing that we're seeing exactly. It's the same story. It's a quite, quite. If you talk to educators in in other countries that have followed a similar route. So I talk to people in Canada or, or certain states of America, or, you know, friends in Scandinavia. Like we haven't been able to 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 catch our breath because we're facing disruption. Um, if your teacher's always off, or you're you're having lots and lots of cover, despite the fact that I am I'm am currently working as cover. That, that lack of consistency isn't good for children's education. Would we you know? Like regardless of what what a school of educational thought you are the one thing we all agree on is consistency is key and how can we provide consistency when children are constantly going off sick and staff are constantly going off sick it,
1: so, you the, the, then, do do so you would say then so you 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 would say then you need to keep schools open but if we keep schools open we would have to put in place and still would you still advocate that we should have some mitigation in schools like for instance if infection rates go up should we be having masks in communal areas should there be ventilation systems in school because we i know people who are currently off with covid and therefore it hasn't gone away do you envisage that we could be dragged into another not completely the same it wouldn't be because of the vaccination and the, the, the saturation levels of vaccinations and some of the kids have been vaccinated and of course we have reached a point where people have had you know covid and therefore built up some immunity to it but do we still need some mitigation and what mitigation would we need to be able to live with it so that we don't have to send you know what i'm trying to say we need what could we do to keep schools open that would allow us to keep schools open and still manage this so we don't end slipping back to where we were a year or so ago
4: oh it, it, first and foremost it is because COVID is airborne it, it's it's clean air it's ventilation and air filtration units but that should be like that should be made a standard we should have decent air purity standards. Belgium have just put in some really good legislation, where they are, where they're, they're, they will be fitting out all of their classrooms. They're having clean air standards because it doesn't reduce just reduce COVID. It's going to reduce flu. It's going to cause other. It's going to reduce the other issues. Um, we know that high levels of CO two in the classroom makes it harder for children to concentrate because they get mm. drowsy. Um, that does occur looking looking at c o two monitor readings, we can see that some of our classrooms are not are not well designed to to get the best out of children anyway um mm. so that would be first and foremost but and that because it has lots of different benefits as well so, and if you look at countries like like japan, japan has managed to keep its cases down really well they've they haven't had a proper full lockdown. What they have had is they've had good ventilation, good clean air um and on top of that. When cases were, and then they will have mass. But you, you would, you'd would introduce mass when cases start to rise. Mm. Um, and but but that's really, I, I did also see something about Sweden as well. One thing I didn't realise with Sweden, which is which may actually have had an impact on some of the, some of their data, is the fact that they they have very good ventilation in all of their buildings as standard, and their schools. Their schools are very well ventilated. They also have considerably smaller class sizes as well. Which will, of course, reduce reduce chains of chains of transmission. So they were actually in a better place to try and uh, avoid lockdown because of the way that their building regulations are. You know, it did help that they also have kind of like fudged a lot of the figures. You know, they they <laughs> they covered they covered up statistics on child mortality. Internal emails for that have been released as well. Um, so Sweden isn't as much of a success as they say, and they are now starting to see some real issues um in some of the data that's come out regarding what's what's happened to the health of their children uh so the idea that we could just follow sweden isn't right we don't have the conditions for that and we don't have the correct data to be able to judge what's what's happening in that country yeah
1: it's it's hard to judge country to country because you're exactly right because you know the buildings are different classes are different the social context is different you know you're your Ch- japan the countries like japan and china are better set up to deal with pandemics and diseases and their their societies are more complicit aren't they and they are more um you know down to their confucianism that they follow instructions a lot more they it's in their culture isn't it and they've had more dealings with this and, and this was a bit of a culture shift for british society and which led to and i still think it does lead to uh, this this controversy of uh, uh, what is the truth and this is the, this is the crux of the matter of you know, until we get to the truth of the matter of what exactly happened, it's very hard to put in place um, mitigations unless people agree to it. And, and I think we've reached that point where there's so many different variations and narratives about what happened during COVID that no matter what you do now, you're always going to get a bunch of people who are going to say no to a certain mitigation and another bunch of people who are going to say yes. And, and I think, again, that's the, the division. And it, it has implications for the children we teach because. During the pandemic, you know, I was having you know children at home who I would suggest who were becoming radicalized by YouTube and all this type of stuff. They were reading that this the the vaccine, that in particular, there was there was those that you know felt that the vaccine was not something they wanted, and you saw these conspiracy theories bounded around it. It was, and I think it is very difficult for schools now to find the middle ground of. How do we deal with society? Because we are picking up the pieces of society's issues and trying to manage that, and trying to, you know, have hundreds of people in the same place who feel the same way about something is very, very difficult. And I think that's why it's comparing UK to other countries is 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 it's not easy. Talking of comparisons, though, could there be comparisons be made between Scotland, for instance, Northern Ireland, Wales, and England? Is there are there differences between? Because I know Scotland managed things slightly different to England. Is the Scottish data showing um, better dealing with it in schools or did they deal with it so what was the comparison between the different regions or is that something you know a bit about
4: so so what you'll find with um, Scotland and, and Wales is they generally uh, had a more cautious kind of route out so when they came out of lockdown they were more cautious They they would they did have masks in more places um, they basically they, they they followed pretty much the same the, the same kind of route as we have but took more time doing it so, but then, so they managed to to keep masks for longer, or they kept they kept other measures or they kind of like staggered their returns a little bit more. Um, and when you've got cases in decline, anyway, just just waited another week or two before dropping stuff makes a big difference because in that time, of the, the, the community level rates will have dropped considerably by that point as well. Because we we did come down quite quickly a a, a couple of times. Um, so there, there is there is some data to, to support that. Um, what is disappointing is the fact that the government ran a trial in uh, I think it's Bradford on the effectiveness of uh, clean air clean air filters. They did that last year. They initially promised that it would be published by the end of 2021. They didn't publish it at the end of 2021. They then said that it would be published by the end of October 2022. Why Why we have to wait a year for the results of this clean air trial to see if it did actually work in reducing infection cases, I don't know. But we're now into November, and that, that data, that trial data, is still not being published. So this is the issue. They haven't even tried to see if ventilation and clean air would have an impact. We, we had to wait a year and a half for them to run the trial. It was a small-scale trial, and there were some issues with the with how it was being run and the choice of units that they were using. Um, but still, even now that they've conducted that, we still can't see the results of it. So they, it's almost like they don't even want to discuss the possibility that there may be something simple that we could put in, But particularly clean air, an air filter in a classroom is not a restriction. Nobody can class that as a restriction or an attack on children's freedom, or you know, taking away their liberties. A little a little box that cleans the air of virus in in the corner of the room is is inoffensive to everybody. I, I find it very hard to understand why people could argue against that. The only thing they could argue about is cost and effectiveness. So we mm-hmm. just needed the data for that, and the government's refusal to to actually look into it properly i think it's quite telling to their response they don't they don't want to they don't want an answer
1: that's something i took away i mean i'm i'm terrible for it i I leave my windows open the kids come in and they'll go sir it's cold in here and i'm going great you're going to be awake the rest of the lesson and they find my classroom at 17 18 degrees and i like a source of fresh air coming through it but i notice i walk in and use other people's classrooms sometimes i don't have my own room all the time and i walk into another classroom and it's like I'm walking into the Bahamas, you know, all the radiators are on, the windows are closed. And I still think we need that possible conversation with the whole profession about this. I think there needs to be work done about clean air ventilation and the setup of our classrooms. Because I I, I walk into some rooms and straight away the kids are looking at me going, sir, can we open a window and it's stuffy? You can actually feel the, the stuffiness in the air and, and you think even if it's not COVID, you're right about the likes of coughs, colds, flus. And then I suppose it's your marginal gains. If you were to put filters, air filters in your in your school, right, your teachers are less likely to get coughs, colds, sneezes, sore throats, and, and, and they're more likely to be in school. So attendance goes up. Well, that, you know, I, I can't understand that. That for me is a no brainer, because why would the health of your people in a room and keeping them healthier kids being in school longer there's such a correlation between attendance and academic achievement isn't there so children are at school more because they're healthy because they're breathing in healthier air then you're going to get the marginal gains of better exam results of that you're going to have your you know your teachers healthier and that in itself i would say it pays for itself so i I agree with you on that I, i i can't understand why you would not have cleaner air. In a school, especially when you're dealing with young lungs and you're dealing with children, you know, and it is something I think I'd like to take forward myself. It's something I'm going to keep an eye on because it's something I think is worth campaigning on. But I suppose the problem is pay conditions, budgeting. There's so many problems at the moment, isn't there? In education, that ventilation of classrooms—it's kind of moved on. You know what I'm saying? It's—it's it's kind of we're done with that now. We're—we're we're, we're stuck in. We're constantly stuck in crisis mode. And we COVID is an irritation, it's not longer the big thing, but actually maybe the reflection on it should produce, and I think we've summarized that, some outcomes that we've missed, like blended learning, like, you know, um, paying attention to ch- the type of learning that children do. They can do learning at home. And that's, I suppose, the disappointment I have is that we, we've kind of gone through this horrible experience and we've come out the other side. And I then say, what's changed? You know, and, and, and during, like, for, say, for instance, the First World War, women got the vote, society changed after the First World War for the better. After World War Two, we got the NHS. After this whole horrible pandemic experience, you kind of hope that we all sit back, reflect, and go, let's make things better. And I'm not getting that sense of it. That's what worries me a little bit is that we we, we, we kind of need to learn, learn the lessons. So I'm going to leave it there. I've got one last question for you, my friend. Have you got a yeah. name chosen? have you got a name chosen
4: oh um well for, for we, we've agreed on we've agreed on a girl's name um when it comes to when it comes to boys uh so i'm hoping because we don't know the gender i'm hoping it's a girl because we've we've got agreement there um when it comes to a boy there's still negotiate negotiation to be done so i uh i want a girl just because it would make her make make her things simpler for us uh, you, but I'm not allowed to say what the name is until, until the child's out. Do
1: you have the curse of the teacher thing when you, um? it's difficult being a teacher and choosing children's names because there's always a child's name and you go, I knew one of those, I knew one of those, I knew one of those, or is it is it, uh, have you got a couple of boys names in mind or is it, is it going to do a potluck?
4: uh yeah well we're, we're, it is yeah we're, we're with the boys it's it's yeah we, we we've we've struggled yeah we haven't been able to find one that we we agree on there, there there's ones that are i'm fairly flexible but it's not really it's not really down, lucky enough it's not really down to the um previous former pupils i've known there's just there's just some names i, I just don't like the sound of more than others really <laughs> um but you know, but I also think I don't know, I don't know if this is just my opinion, but I feel that you get more variety with girls' names. There seems to be a more a wider a wider range because the one thing we didn't want was a, a Christian name. So we didn't want a we didn't want a Christian first name. So so once you remove those, there seems to be lots of other options for for a lot more options for girls than boys. I. You're,
1: you're, you're, you're spot on actually um along the boys with my I, I, I have two girls um and and I didn't know it was gonna uh, second time round I knew it was gonna have a girl first time round it was uh we didn't know um but I my speculation was I insisted that I would like an Irish Celtic name but my wife's insistence was right, she would go with that but it had to be something that didn't have something completely unpronounced or syllables in the <laughs> wrong place so we we, we we had to go with something you know that was pronounceable and, um And um, what you get there is is, is the, the difficulty of names are we carry with you. And the, I'm actually known by my second Christian name, not my first Christian name, which always surprises people. But they are important because you know the name. You know yourself. A name is, is is part of somebody's identity. So it is it is something that they carry with it the rest of their lives. But thank you for your 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 candid honesty. It's been a fantastic interview. I always love speaking to you, my friend, uh, because you know your stuff. You've you uh you've lived this um for the last couple of years and you've campaigned on it and, and your passion comes through and it um i suppose what i'd say to you is is you've got a priority in the next couple of weeks to be to, you're, you're, you may find that doing all these things that you're doing that you may have to take a back seat to it because the most important thing about to happen to you in there but then that might make you like like it made me campaign more because my children are in the education system at the moment and i want the best for them too not just the children i teach but you do want the best for your own children and i think there are lots of lessons definitely to be learned um so thank you for that karen i really enjoyed that and and best of luck let me know how it goes and and, and best of luck for the for, for the next couple of weeks and get some sleep now because you're definitely gonna need it in the next couple of weeks my friend
4: um thank you very much for having me on i'll uh, i'll let you know, i'll let you know when uh when it comes
1: <laughs> brilliant <laughs> see you later my friend all right thanks. So that was Brilliant. That was Karam. And um, Karam was uh, an excellent caller there. He is an expert in many things. And we had a really good chat there about COVID safety. I'm going to bring my friend Spence back in to just digest the last couple of minutes of that. Um, for anybody that wants to call in or send some messages, you're more than welcome to. Um, But Adam, what did you think then? To to all that. Then? Well, I
2: think it was like summed up perfectly at the end then with these studies that are happening, especially with air quality. You know, we need that information, don't we? We need that data um, into the system so we can assess it properly. I mean, that's that's essentially kind of what is required. Um, you know, we all we need to move forward, and we need to kind of know the mistakes that were made. You know, as I think as you said, Brent. You know, people do make mistakes. There are genuine mistakes, and we need to move on as society. Sometimes, but I think if data is not being published and not being shown, it's very difficult then for us to move on collectively as a, as you know, as as em- employees, as colleagues, as parents. You know, uh, Karam talked about the whole stakeholders being involved there. You know, we'd, we really do need that that data kind of coming through, and if trials are being done, you know, the effectiveness in. Um, Bradford kind of kind of quick look as he was talking there's 30 schools that have been involved in that that trial it'd be really good to get that data in systems so head teachers you know school leaders could have a look at what's going on and really kind of work out kind of what needs to be done if this was to happen in the future
1: yeah but but, but what comes down to it I mean um health and safety of children health and safety of staff has to be the most important thing and it's what Ofsted fails people on. They can have the mm. most perfect school and exam results, they could have the most perfect school and everything. But if health and safety isn't right, they're, they're inadequate. That's right. And, and I've seen schools failed on health and safety grounds. And it's got to be because you're entrusting the safety of children and you're entrusting the safety of workers. And, and I equated it at one stage, I equated it to the lions led by donkeys, a historical reference to the soldiers of the First World War, the, the brave. Brave teachers who did their duty, and again with their, our our rest of our public sector colleagues, you know the, the, the police, the fire service, the nurses, all those people stepped up during COVID, didn't they? But I do have that niggle that it's very easy to to criticise teachers that we didn't do, and still this perception that some people have: you teachers had you know, time off,
2: we didn't really have. Time. No, no one had time off that I knew. They were all working harder, if, if anything. Uh, to try and work out what to do. So there was the the practical sense actually trying to actually try and speak to parents and speak to pupils. But actually, there was a load of uh, community stuff going on behind the scenes to actually work out what are you doing and what are you doing and how are you getting this? And how are you doing this? And what software are you using to get um, this retrieval exercise done or this bit of knowledge over to pupils? So, yeah, so there was definitely, I, I worked, if anything, harder straight away just because you had to kind of I did. suddenly just like, you know, we were, we were kind of, um running around trying to find the best software the right kits um does the stuff work at home where are you going to work you know what are you going to do with your own children you know it was it
1: was It, mental, it, was, it, it? was
2: absolutely kind of off the scale really
1: it was if we, you think about when we look back and you go i it's i think i've almost put a mental block in the place <laughs> yeah. because yeah. it was like the eye of the storm we were mm. just one day you're learning how to do teams and somebody in the staff room knows how to do teams and they're just cascading that knowledge to everybody else that's right yeah. or even the staff room itself i, I led the staff room right and my colleagues any that was listening they will know i had 12 chairs with two meters apart and i taped them down i i i, I actually destroyed all the dishes got rid of they were like a student household yeah i went to the staff room and removed all spare dishes and spare mugs i was the killjoy of <laughs> i had the kids walking on the one hand side and on a one-way system because I felt, you know, it was part of my responsibility as a, as, as a health and safety union rep to go in and evenly, I have to say, I went into my head teacher and he was all the time going, what do you need? Because, you know, we use a parent as well, and he's caught in the middle of it. And I do have a lot of sympathy for leadership management in the last two years, because they have, they had to step up, they had to do their best under difficult circumstances. And I think our profession deserves a lot of credit and linked to last week and Kevin you know we did step up we did do our duty we did find it difficult and i think the profession did its noble duty as best possible in the circumstances that we find ourselves in and i just hope now that those circumstances get repeated then lessons have been learned and and they they don't seem to be fully there yet and i hope that they are because that's the whole idea of education isn't it that's it yeah what would education be if you weren't able to learn so Thank you. It's been, it's been a wonderful show. Um, I really enjoyed that that interview, um, and, and hopefully it's not brought back too many um, horrible experiences during the, the, the pandemic as COVID. I thought it was appropriate to do that um, because it's building upon this, this idea of the current context of what's happening in schools, and, and it is creeping back in COVID back into schools, and I think there's definitely things that can be done to make our schools more safe. And, and lessons that can be learned for the future. This has been Teachers Talk Radio. I am Brent Poland and I've had Adam.
2: Yeah, thank you very much for listening and please feel free to contact us on Twitter during the week if you'd like to, you know, voice your opinion and it'd be great if you call in next week um, and, or you can message into the show as well, which, which we would also like to hear from you. Okay, thank you. Oh, and next week I am going to, on recommendation, I'm going to keep log this week
1: of my average working week i put a tweet up there early on in the week in response to tom's tweet about the average working day of a a teacher and i posted up all the things i'd done that day and it got a huge response and it it generated a kind of a request though why don't we do the average working week of a teacher so i'm going to do something unlike me because i'm not a, a big writer down of things like i keep everything in my head got one of those brains that remembers things. Um, but I'm going to write down every kind of thing that happens during the week as a teacher. Every, you know, how many phone calls I make, how many emails I answer. So I'm going to log my week as an average teacher. So if anybody wants to participate in that or anybody wants to be a guest on that or anybody wants to keep a log as well, I'm going to ask you to do that, Adam, yeah, as definitely, well. Yeah, definitely. So we'll keep a log this week and we'll ask others um, to keep a log this week. And then we'll, we'll see what an average teacher does during the week. How many books did you mark? Um, How many data entry points were there? How many lessons did you teach? How many children have you taught? How many subjects? So I'm gonna keep a total of all the things that I do, how many conversations I have. I'm basically going to be, I write data, What's the guy that used to be on the TV show? Anor, not Anor. Stato. Stato. Yeah,
2: fantasy football, yeah. Fantasy football. <laughs> Stato, Stato. Stato.
1: Stato. I'm going to be a right Stato this week and try and keep as much data as possible and then say, oh, this is an average teacher and I'll look for you guys to call in and see what you think as well and see how your week compares. Um, And I don't compare to primary school teachers. You guys are absolutely amazing. And I think they can never be a primary school teacher. So this has been Teacher Talk Radio. I'm Brent and we've had Adam and Aram on as well. And I wish you all a wonderful summer.
0: Live from Derbyshire, this is The Sunday Lunch Show with Brent Poland. And you are listening live. teachers talk radio and you are listening live tune in live at TTRadio.org or join in the conversation by downloading the pop Bean app and following teachers talk radio hashtag tt radio